Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Everything happens for a reason. You've heard those words before, surely. Maybe someone spoke them to you after a diagnosis or a tragedy. Maybe you found the words on your own lips, sharing them with a friend who you weren't sure what else to say to comfort them in their suffering. It's also the title of a book by Kate Bowler, Duke Divinity School professor. Her book is titled, Everything Happens for a Reason, and other lies I've loved. There she writes, the only thing worse than saying everything happens for a reason is pretending that you know the reason. I've had hundreds of people tell me the reason for my cancer, because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness, because God is fair, because God is unfair because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. I mean, no one is short of reasons. So if people tell you that everything happens for a reason, that your suffering is just part of God's plan, make sure you are there when they go through the cruelest moments of their lives. Those five little words, everything happens for a reason, They're often used as a way of explaining the coexistence of an all-powerful, all-loving God and evil in the world. It's what we call a theodicy. And we'll talk more about theodicy in a bit, but first, let's spend a few moments recalling Joseph's story and how he and his brothers arrived at this astonishing reunion that we just heard Pastor Lindsay read from Genesis 45. Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob the grandson of Abraham. But Joseph wasn't just really one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was Jacob's favorite son. And parents, I know that we all have a favorite child, but you're not supposed to tell everyone, right? Joseph's brothers had had enough of that, and so they hatch a plan. They're going to lure Joseph into the middle of nowhere, kill him, and throw his body down a well and then tell their father that their favorite, his favorite son was eaten by wild animals. But one of his brothers, Reuben, doesn't feel right about the whole thing. So he convinces the rest of his brothers not to kill Joseph, but just to throw him down the well. A really stand-up guy, right? <laughs> and Reuben's secret plan is later to go back and to rescue his brother from the well and return him to his father. So they throw him down this empty well, and apparently Reuben must be off someplace else because then a group of traders comes by, and another one of the brothers, Judah, comes up with the idea that instead of killing Joseph, why don't they just sell him off into slavery? And by the time Reuben returns, he finds Joseph is gone. He has been sold into slavery, and then the brothers agree to lie to their father and say, after all, that he was eaten by a wild animal. The traders, meanwhile, auction Joseph off to the highest bidder, who happens to be the chief of staff to the Egyptian pharaoh. And over the ensuing years, we hear some of Joseph's story, especially his suffering. He's a slave in a foreign country. 
He's wrongly accused of a crime and in prison. And this is about 10 years of his life. But then things start to turn around for Joseph. He's called in by the Pharaoh to interpret a mysterious dream. And when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream to mean that they'll have seven years of good harvests, followed by seven years of famine, the Pharaoh appoints him to oversee the collection of grain ahead of the famine. People then, when the famine finally hits, begin to flock to Egypt because they've stored up this grain, and they're looking for food. And guess who shows up? Joseph's brothers, of course. And that's how we arrive at this point in our story this morning where Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers who must be in complete shock. And if I were them, I'd be a little afraid of what he might do in revenge. But instead, Joseph says, no worries. You see, everything happens for a reason. Like Joseph, we all try to make sense of suffering, our own suffering, the suffering of our family and friends, or even global suffering like poverty or starvation or war. We ask, why God? Why me? Why this? How could you allow this to happen? And when people respond to these lamenting questions with those five words, everything happens for a reason, the insinuation is that we should simply trust that whatever happens is part of God's plan. Indeed, that whatever happens must be God's will, even if we don't understand why. But the reality is that for many people, including me, that answer isn't just insufficient. It can be harmful. Look, everyone, including Joseph, is entitled to their way of understanding their suffering. But if you, like me, aren't satisfied with the traditional everything happens for a reason explanation, then listen up. Because the Bible reveals that's not the only way for us to understand suffering. And so I'd like to offer a few alternatives, a few other theological explanations of God's relationship to evil and suffering. And to do that, I'm going to circle back to that fancy word I mentioned earlier, theodicy. Theodicy is a Greek word that literally means vindication of God. It's essentially a theological defense of God's goodness in the face of evil. And a theodicy answers the question, why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? I'll introduce three different theodicies, and I'll give you a biblical reference that supports each of them. I'll briefly explain the basics of that approach and then we'll consider how Joseph might have responded differently to his brothers if he uh, held that particular theodicy instead of his everything happens for a reason. The first one is called person-making, person-making. And we see the shape of this theodicy in Romans 5, uh, verses 3 and 4, which read, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. At the core of person-making theodicy is the idea that humans are created incomplete, 
and we need to grow into the fullness of who God intends us to be. And to do this, we need to be able to freely choose between good and evil and learn through the consequences, which sometimes means suffering because of our decisions. And so in this theodicy, suffering is a necessary part of being human, of becoming fully human. And so if we were to put this theodicy into the mouth of Joseph, his response might have sounded something like this. My brothers, your decision to sell me into slavery caused me great pain and suffering. But God used that suffering to shape me into the great leader I am today. In a way, I guess you could say that because of my suffering, I was able to help save so many lives during this famine. A second approach is what I'll call process theodicy. It's represented in Genesis 2.16, for example, which says, The Lord God commanded the human, Eat your fill from all the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Similar to person-making, process theology emphasizes human free will. We must choose between following God's path and going our own way. But the most distinctive characteristic of process theodicy has to do with God's under, our understanding of God's power. Classical omnipotence says that God has power over creation, that God controls everything in creation. Process theology, on the other hand, posits that God has made a choice to share power with creation. It's not a split of power, but a sharing of power. And so God's power is never coercive or controlling, only persuasive. Because persuasion is the way that we can influence someone while allowing them to remain free to make their own decisions. Suffering, then, in this case, happens because we ignore God's persuasion. And so Joseph's response might have sounded something like this. My brothers... God was at work in Reuben, trying to persuade you to spare my life. But instead of listening to God, you took your own course. Even so, God created good out of this whole situation by persuading Pharaoh to trust me, and now because of this, many lives will be saved. A third and final theodicy I'll call liberation theodicy. And for that, we'll read from Matthew 10, 38 and 39. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. Those who find their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. The central claim of liberation theology is that God is always at work liberating the poor and the oppressed. Yet, as we know all too well, the poor and oppressed continue to suffer greatly in the world today. And liberation theology would say that is because of human sin. But God doesn't want us to accept suffering as a fact of life. Instead, God calls us to use suffering to transform the world and ultimately to drive out evil. 
They point to Jesus' death on the cross as God struggling with us against evil. And Jesus' resurrection is the promise that God will ultimately overcome all evil and suffering. If Joseph, Joseph were a liberationist, he might have said, My brothers, you wronged me, and I suffered because of it. And yet God was with me. God was suffering alongside of me. God was at work liberating me from my suffering so that I could liberate others from the suffering of this famine. So there you have it. Three alternative theodicies to everything happens for a reason. And the reason I presented you with three alternatives rather than just one is because there is no one right way to understand God suffering and evil. They are only partial understandings of a God who is far bigger than we could ever imagine. But taking these three theodicies together, I find three truths about God's suffering and evil. One, we believe in a God who gives us freedom to choose between good and evil. Rather than understanding God's plan as an immutable fate set before us, we can understand God's plan as dynamic, a vision that is constantly adapting to our human decisions while God remains completely constant in God's ultimate end of love and reconciliation. Two, we believe in a God who suffers with us. God knows intimately the pain of our suffering and feels it with us. God heard the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. God shared the pain of Jesus on the cross. And God feels your sorrow and suffering too. Three, we believe in a God who partners with us to overcome evil and suffering. Even if God suffers with us, God doesn't just sit by and take it, and neither should we. God has given us the Holy Spirit to guide us in resisting and overcoming evil in ourselves and in the world. And in the resurrection, God has given us the ultimate hope that evil will not prevail. So whatever suffering you've experienced in your life, or whatever may be weighing on you right now, I hope that these ideas give you a sliver of understanding and an ounce of comfort. I hope they give you permission to stop seeking a reason for your suffering and instead to rest in the assurance that God is present with you and that God is working with you and through you to overcome suffering and evil until it is no more. This I deliver to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.